Welcome everyone. You're listening to another episode of Coffee Talks with Mike. Hope you enjoy the book this week and we're going to get into it. Welcome back everyone for a episode of Coffee Talks with Mike. I am so happy to be back. Um, Last week I had to take off unexpectedly because of a tropical storm. I was on vacation for the first time in a while, which was really, really good to get away and relax and rest. But uh, I had to kind of expand that vacation, which isn't a bad thing. But uh, as a result, I just didn't have any time to get to a microphone and record, unfortunately. So here we are, an impromptu week off, but now we are back in the swing again. So welcome. Glad you're here. Uh, as I was trying to figure out what I wanted to kind of end my summer with uh, reading, there are a couple of just different excerpts of things I've been wanting to read over the last couple of weeks, and I just haven't really been able to make the time in the same way that I usually do. But um you know, my final semester seminary starts next week. So I'm going to be a little bit crunched for time of being able to read multiple books at once outside of school. So I was like, all right, what do I want to wrap things up with? And um, I grabbed this book that we've done together before, but um, there's about 50 chapters in this that are all different ideas, basically. So I figured that jumping back into some Merton this week might be a really good place to start. So this is from Seeds of Contemplation. This is is chapter 10, um, and it's called A Body of Broken Bones. So I'm just going to read you a couple um, excerpts to kind of start things off here. He starts the chapter saying, You and I and all human beings were made to find our identity in the one mystical Christ in whom we all complete one another unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the age of the fullness of Christ. Now that last phrase, unto a perfect man and on, is actually a quote from scripture. He says that when we all reach that perfection of love, which is the contemplation of God in his glory, our personalities, while remaining eternally distinct, will nevertheless combine into one, capital O, so that each one of us will find themselves in all the others, and God will be the life and reality of all. Now, Merton already, in the second paragraph here, he's pointing to kind of world religions, but pointing to what makes Christianity distinctive. So um, in something like Hinduism, for example, uh, the idea is that when we die, we're actually absorbed back into Brahman or into this ultimate higher power. So the the idea in a religion with that perspective is that like all things have the capacity to um, point us toward God. And ultimately, when we die, we will be returned to our dwelling place in God. So it, it's kind of a turn of a phrase in some ways, but Um, that language that Merton's using here saying that we will have our personalities remaining eternally distinct is an important um, technical distinction he's making on his end is saying that no, like in the end, like we were created as individuals, as personalities, as, as people. So in eternity, 
we will still remain distinctive personalities. We won't lose ourselves in one another in one sense. In another sense, this imagery that is used all throughout scripture, particularly the New Testament of um, God's bride or of the church or as the body, that we are also one. And that when we are combined into one, we have a new identity as a collective and that God with us is what gives meaning to us and our oneness. So our distinctive personalities are really important. And yet we are just as importantly supposed to be unified as one. Um, So an easy place to kind of rest your mind is just the idea of the imagery Paul uses of saying we're a body of many members. Now, this chapter is a body of broken bones, and that's what I really want to get to. Um, But so let's transition here a little bit. So Merton goes on and he says, in the whole world throughout all of history, even among the religious people and the saints, Christ suffers dismemberment. All over the face of the earth, the avarice and lust of humankind breed unceasing divisions among people. And the wounds that tear people from union with one another widen and open into huge wars. Christ is massacred in his members, torn limb from limb. God is murdered in humanity. Now, he's using, obviously, parallel terms here to try and point to what is happening. I heard a professor in uh, undergrad talk about how you know, the Protestant Reformation was a really important part of um, church history in one sense. In another sense, it was the dismemberment or the divorce of the church because Christians are Christians. And sometimes we distinct or uh, distinguish rather between Christians and Catholics. It's like, no, no, no. Like we can do Catholics and Protestants, but the body of Christ is all believers of Christ, not just the ones that fit into your particular camp. So um, what Merton is talking about here is saying, yeah, every terrible atrocity that happens that impacts the body, that's impacting Christ too. The terrible things we do to one another, we are doing to Christ. This is Matthew, I think, 25 language, right? The separation of the uh, sheeps and the goat. You know, what you've done to the least of these, you've done to me. So uh, Merton goes on a little bit. He says, as long as we are on earth, the love that unites us will bring us suffering by our very contact with one another, because this love is a resetting of a body of broken bones. Even saints cannot live with saints on this earth because of some anguish without some pain at the differences that come between them. We know that, right? He goes on, there are two things which people can do about the pain of disunion amongst other humans. They can love or they can hate. Hatred recoils from the sacrifice and the sorrow that are the price of this resetting of bones. It refuses the pain of reunion. There is in every weak, lost, and isolated member of the human race an agony of hatred born of his own helplessness, his own isolation. Hatred is the sign and the expression of loneliness, of unworthiness, 
of insufficiency. And insofar as each one of us is lonely, is unworthy, each one of us hates themselves. Some of us are aware of this self-hatred and because of it, we reproach ourselves and punish ourselves needlessly. Punishment cannot cure the feeling that we are un unworthy. Others who are less conscious of their own self-hatred realize it in a different form by projecting it onto others. There is a proud and self-confident hate, strong and cruel, which enjoys the pleasure of hating for it's directed outward to the unworthiness of another. But this strong and happy hate does not realize that like all hate, it destroys and consumes the self that is hating and not the object that is hated. Hate in any form is self-destructive. And even when it triumphs physically, it triumphs in its own spiritual ruin. Pause there for a minute. Um, I think this is so important. And I don't even want to say, especially today, I mean, because of course, in our current circumstances, we all think that, you know, things are worse than they've ever been and things are never going to get better and people stink and all these things. But it's like, no, like, at every turn of human history, there have been terrible atrocities, ter terrible divisions, terrible slander, greed, hatred. All of these things have thrived throughout history. But what Merton's pointing to is really the, the antithesis of the gospel. And when we say that God is love, you know, that passage, 1 Corinthians 13, and, you know, it's often read at weddings, which you know, that's debatable if that's really a good idea, but that's fine. But you, every time we say love is, you should be able to replace love with God. God is patient. God is kind. God is long-suffering, et cetera, et cetera. Hate is the opposite of all of those things. So again, he's using the imagery of the body of Christ. He says, all of our lives, if we come into contact with love, it will also bring suffering because our our mission in life is resetting a body of broken bones. Again, that's the title of this chapter of this kind of thought experiment from Merton. He's saying the two things we can do when we are presented with disunity with other people is we can either love or we can hate. And it seems like that dichotomy is, you know, more plausible than you think. And it makes hatred kind of cast a broader umbrella and it well there are things we should hate and people we should hate and and i i think that merton's going to go on here and kind of pivot a little bit and explain like there's a difference between recognizing something is wrong pointing to something that is evil and hating that thing because hating the thing or hating the person more importantly hating the image bearer does something to us and not to them there's all kinds of cliches about this that have probably evolved from ancient ideas, but things like, you know, drinking the poison and hoping the other person is affected by it or something to that effect. But the big ideas that I think are interesting as we move forward here is that Merton says that hatred is the sign and expression of loneliness, unworthiness, and insufficiency. And when we're not aware of that, those things in us, we start to project them onto other people we think are unworthy.
And he ends that section with hate in any form is self-destructive and it triumphs in its own spiritual ruin. So I'm going to go on a little bit. It says strong hate, the hate that takes joy in hating is strong because it does not believe itself to be unworthy and alone. It feels the support of a justifying God, of an idol of war, an avenging and destroying spirit. In conquering death, Jesus opened people's eyes to the reality of a love which no, which asks no questions about worthiness, a love which overcomes hatred and destroys death. But humanity has now come to reject the divine re revelation of pardon. And they are consequently returning to the old war gods, the gods that insatiably drink blood and eat flesh of people. It's easier to serve the hate gods because they thrive on the worship of collective fanaticism. To serve the hate gods, one has only to be blinded by collective passion. But to serve the God of love, one must be free. One must face the terrible responsibility of the decision to love in spite of all unworthiness, whether in oneself or in one's neighbor. Now, again, Merton is pointing to ancient ideas here. It might sound like um, he's just kind of grasping at something, but majority, the majority of ancient religions were these war gods, were these gods that embraced human sacrifice, were these gods that you know, wanted to punish at every turn. And um, perhaps you're thinking, yeah, I've read the Old Testament. Sounds like that's what's going on there. And there's a lot of ways you can talk about those things. But at the very least, we can say um, there's a sharp transition in some of that blood language to the New Testament. Uh, some of those expectations of uh, going to fight a holy war and Jesus instead showing no we'll turn the other cheek. No, we'll love our neighbor. No, we'll love our enemy. I mean, even on the cross, Jesus cries out on behalf of those killing him, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. It's a sharp, distinctive turn from the old understanding of kind of this conquering God to this God of love. And Merton's point in pointing to that is that in Jesus's death, he conquers these old ideas. He conquers the reality of hatred with the reality of love, a love that overcomes hatred and death. And that is not concerned with worthiness. I mean, that is what grace is that you know, we are not worthy, but thank goodness, Jesus doesn't care. Um, there's this Lewis quote that I really appreciate and love like that. God doesn't love us because we're good, but he makes us good because he loves us. And here's Merton is drawing upon that same tradition that goes long before both of them. Um, so let's go on a little bit. It says, the man who's able to hate strongly and with a quiet conscience is one who's complacently blind to all the unworthiness in himself and serenely capable of seeing all his own wrongs in someone else. I mean, that is just totally life, right? Even if we're able to name that we have these unworthy features in ourselves, we still say, well, it's not as bad as so-and-so's. Worst case scenario, we believe there's nothing wrong with us. 
best case scenario of the hatred mentality is we know there's something wrong with us, but we think like, you know, we're not as bad as those other people. I think we all know that's not the realistic way of seeing the world. Merton goes on. But the person who is aware of their own unworthiness and the unworthiness of his brothers and sisters is tempted with a subtler and more tormenting kind of hate, the general searing, nauseating hate of everything and everyone, because everything is tainted with unworthiness, everything is unclean, everything is foul with sin. What this weak hate really is, is weak love. He who cannot love feels unworthy and at the same time feels that somehow no one is worthy. Perhaps he cannot feel love because he thinks he's unworthy of love. And because of that, he also thinks that no one else is worthy. The beginning of the fight against hatred, the basic Christian answer to hatred is not the commandment to love, but what must necessarily come before in order to make that commandment bearable and comprehensible. And it's the prior commandment to believe. So it's a little bit of word salad there. So what he's saying is, you know, the, the commandment that negates hatred is not the commandment to love. It's the commandment that comes right before it. It's the prerequisite of love. And that is the commandment to believe the root of Christian love is not the will to love but the faith that one is loved, the faith that one is loved by God, that faith, that one is loved by God, although unworthy, or rather irrespective of one's worth. The fundamental belief of our faith is not that we will always have the will to love, but rather that we believe we are loved. And because we are loved, we are called to love others. And because we are loved when we are unworthy, we are called to love others amidst their unworthiness. And, you know, sometimes we try to get in through the side door here and people try to make comments like, man, you, you are terrible, but I love you because Jesus told me to. Like, no, that doesn't count as the love we're talking about. You don't get to name all the terrible things about someone and then pretend you're doing it out of love. Like, that is not what we're talking about here. The faith that we are loved amid, despite our unworthiness, that is what causes us to love, even when we feel we don't have the will to do so. We're a body of broken bones and we're called to reset those bones. Man, these words should really be stored away in our hearts for us to recognize the importance of what it means to, to claim this faith that's been passed down to us. Merton and so many people before Merton have, have championed these ideas. And then we see poor attempts, poor versions of them get populated throughout our world. But when we talk about love, hate cannot be a part of what we're doing. So I'm gonna finish this last section and give some final thoughts. Merton says, love by its acceptance of the pain of reunion, the inevitable pain, 
begins to heal all wounds. It says, if you want to know what's meant by saying God's will in someone's life, this is one way to get to a good idea of it. God's will is certainly found in anything that's required of us in order that we may be united with one another in love. Anything that brings us unity in love, that's part of God's will. That's what he's saying. You could call this uh, the basic tenet of the natural law, which is that we should treat others as we would like them to treat us, that we should not do to another that we wouldn't want someone to do to us. In other words, the natural law is simply that we should recognize in every other human being the same nature, the same needs, the same rights, the same destiny as in ourselves. The plainest summary of all the natural law is to treat humans as if they were humans, not to act as if I alone were a human being and every other human were an animal or a piece of furniture. Everything that is demanded of me in order that I may treat other people effectively as human beings is willed for me by God under the natural law. He's quoting Paul there. Whether or not I find the formula satisfactory, it's obvious that I cannot live a truly human life if I consistently disobey this fundamental principle. But I cannot treat other men as men unless I have compassion for them. I must have at least enough compassion to realize that when they suffer, they feel somewhat as I do when I suffer. And if for some reason I do not spontaneously feel this kind of sympathy for others, then it is God's will that I do what I can to learn how. I must learn to share with others their joys, their sufferings, their ideas, their needs, their desires. I must learn to do this not only in the case of those who are of the same class or the same profession or the same race or the same nation as myself, but when people who suffer belong to the other groups, even to groups that are regarded as hostile. If I do this, I obey God. If I refuse to do it, I disobey him. This is not a matter left to subjectivity. Since this is God's will for every person, and since contemplation is a gift not granted to anyone who does not consent to God's will, contemplation is out of the question for anyone who does not try to cultivate compassion for other people. For Christianity is not merely a doctrine or a system of beliefs. It is Christ living in us and uniting people to one another in his own life and unity. He that loves abides not in death. He's quoting Jesus in the Gospel of John there. Man, let me just reread part of that. The natural law is simply that we should recognize in every human being the same nature, the same needs, the same rights, and the same destiny in ourselves. We are called to view other human beings as human beings. I cannot treat other people as people unless I have compassion for them, unless 
I have enough compassion to realize that when they suffer, they feel something like what I suffer. Think of your deepest hurt. The next time you see someone else, even the person you hate most going through something, imagine they're going through your deepest hurt in that moment. Imagine how that feels. What, what does that do to your perspective of that person? Imagine if you experienced your deepest hurt once a week for the rest of your life. Do you think that would make you a more bitter, resentful, guarded person? You don't know the hurts and pains of other people. And I imagine especially the people that you dislike or distrust most because you probably aren't as close to them. You don't know how much pain has yielded the, the kind of person that you see now. Imagine a world where we have the compassion and empathy and sympathy to look at people as image bearers, even when they look the most unworthy. Merton says to repeat, I must learn to share with others their joys, their sufferings, their ideas, their needs, and their desires. I must learn to do this not only in the cases of those who are of the same class, the same profession, the same race, the same nation as myself, but when people who suffer belong to other groups. Who are the other groups to you? What what are the things that you allow to cheapen the love of God by designating someone as other? How many sarcastic and hostile Facebook posts will be enough for us to stop separating out the others? How many aggressive comments will be enough before we start to do the hard work of unity? How many times are we going to misrepresent our Christ to the world by saying out of one side of our mouth, we are agents of peace, seeking reconciliation, wanting to make the kingdom of God here, and out of the other side of our mouth, laughing at people, viewing ourselves as better, condescending, tearing apart the church until we learn how to have empathy for the other groups. In Merton's words, we're disobeying God. Christianity is not merely a doctrine of beliefs. It's Christ living in us and uniting people to one another in his own life and unity. His final section here says, there's only one true flight from the world. It's not an escape from conflict, anguish, and suffering, but the flight from disunity and separation towards unity and peace in the love for other people. But if you try to escape from this world merely by leaving the city and hiding yourself in solitude, you'll only take the city with you into your solitude. And yet you can be entirely out of the world 
while remaining in the midst of it. If you let God set you free from your own selfishness, and if you live for love alone. For the flight from the world is nothing else but the flight from self-concern. And the person who locks themselves up in private with his own selfishness has put himself into a position where the evil within him will either possess him like a devil or drive him out of his mind. That's why it's dangerous to go into solitude merely because you like to be alone. Now, it might seem like a weird ending. It's really important though. The next chapter is about the importance of being alone in solitude. Now, Merton was a monk. Merton was uh, a, someone that believed deeply in the process of being alone, but this is him speaking specifically to people with escapist mentalities, people that believe, well, things are bad now, but you know, one day there's going to be a new heaven, a new earth. So we don't need to worry about it being better now because God's going to make it better on his own later. That's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that God is working here and now in us, through us, and with us. We are not supposed to be passive characters in this story. God created image bearers to join in the work, to join in the process of resetting broken bones. I guess the question for myself today as I reread this chapter and the question I pose to all of you is, what in your life today are you doing to reset broken bones? Or are our actions and our words and our thoughts perpetuating this broken body? Are we part of the problem even when we self-proclaim to be part of the solution? Are we parts of the people that are continuing to cause division, not for the sake of progress, but for the sake of hatred. When we are confronted with the suffering of the world, we have two options to love or to hate. How many times do you choose to love those that are unworthy? Can you see your own unworthiness or do you just project it onto other people? Do you just rank yourself as higher than other people on the spectrum of unworthiness or in humility, do you say, I am unworthy too? And these people require as much love as I do. And the things that have led them to this moment to be what I deem to be unworthy, they may have gone through my worst pain 10 times over. Maybe they need more compassion than I ever did. So what will guide you today and this week and in this life, love or hate, unity or disunity, further brokenness or joining God in the work of resetting broken bones. I love Merton. I hope you get a glimpse of that in this chapter and the other ones we've done. Seeds of Contemplation, can't recommend it enough. Um, yeah. So go, whether you're in your car or in your kitchen or at a coffee shop, and um, think about where you might be able to reset some bones today. Go in peace.